We are in a new collection called Upside Down as we explore the eight blessings that Jesus described in the Beatitudes in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, did you guys enjoy my friend Noah? Wasn't he amazing? So Noah shared about one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And today we're going to continue with another one. Um, a little bit about the Beatitudes. You know, we talked at length about them two weeks ago, but N.T. Wright, a, a theologian I really look up to, he says this about the Beatitudes. He says, they are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future, because that future has arrived in the present of Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is, in fact, the right way up. And so we discover that the way of the kingdom seems upside down, seems countercultural to the ways of the world. But actually, the ways of the kingdom, though they seem upside down, are actually the right way up. And the Beatitudes challenge us to redefine what it means to live upside down. It challenges us to redefine who are blessed and what does blessing mean and what does it look like. They challenge us to interact with our world differently. And so this is what we're going after in each of these beatitudes, in each of these blessings. We're approaching this world in a countercultural way. We're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 8, and this is what Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Not just God, God. They will see God. You know, I love escape rooms. And a few weeks ago, we got the married couples at our church together, which is just a handful. And we got together and we tried to do an escape room in San Mateo. And I love inviting married couples because you see all the little relationship dynamics come out. Like some, some married couples are super nice to each other. Honey, can you please overturn that rock? Honey, can you write down this clue? And some couples are like, hey, open that door. Turn that. And it's just fun to see everyone interacting. But one thing I love about going to escape rooms is basically they lock you in a room with all sorts of different themes and you have to solve all of these puzzles with these clues to try to escape within an hour. And some of the ones I really want to try are really fun. Like there's one where there's a zombie tied to a chain and every 10 minutes the chain gets looser. And so as you're trying to work, the zombie's trying to get to you. And like no one wanted to do that one in our group. But the one we did this a few weeks ago was a circus theme, carnival theme. And it was interesting because as soon as this, the game started, all of us just started to see the room unique in different ways. And so like John, you know, he was yelling, barking out orders because he just has that leader complex. Soph picked up the notepad and was just writing every clue down. Like Fatai and Natasha, they were just turning everything over. And as soon as like we were down to the wire, like five minutes left, and finally someone got the door open. And the rest of us were like, wait, is that it? And all of a sudden we see a blur zoom past us. And I've never seen Fatai move so fast in my entire life. But he zoomed out of the door and pressed the button. And it was so cool because each of us had a unique perspective of the room. We were all in the same room with the same objects, the same puzzles, and the same clues before us, but each of us saw the room so differently. And you know, I have these, if you've ever been in a psychology or sociology class, they have these images that they throw up, and it's like, what do you see? 
And so I want to ask, how many of you see a, a young woman? Raise your hand. How many of you see an older woman with a cloak on? Isn't it interesting that we could look at the same image and see something radically different? There's another one. I love this one. Um, how many of you see a duck? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you see a rabbit? Okay. I'm actually judging you because I took psychology and I know exactly what... No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are deeply wounded. No, I'm just kidding. But isn't it interesting how we can all look at the same thing and end up seeing it so differently? And I think that's true is because we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. That is, we often see what we often see is just our interpretation of what actually is. And we find this especially true when we look at Jesus's life. Because consistently throughout Jesus's life and ministry, all sorts of people would look at him, but they would see such different things. Some people saw Jesus, the miracle worker. Some people saw Jesus, the heretic. Some people saw Jesus, the radical revolutionary that was going to free their people. Some people saw Jesus, the crazy cult leader that made his followers eat his body and drink his blood. God in flesh right there. But so many people missed it. So many people saw him differently. And not many people were able to see God in Jesus. And even for us today, although God is among us, not everyone sees him. Isn't that true? Although God is moving all around us, not everyone is able to perceive it. He's with us in our darkest moments, but we don't see it sometimes. He's moving in our workplace, but we don't really see it, do we? He's working through that person living in assisted housing in the tenderloin, but we don't really see that, do we? Maybe the issue isn't that God is hiding from us, but that we often miss seeing him. And so the question becomes, how do we see God? How do we live in such a way where we don't miss him moving in our lives, where we aren't going weeks and months and years at a time wondering, God, where are you? Why can't I see you in my life? Why can't I see you moving? How do we live in that way? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss a thing. I don't want to miss him. I don't want to miss him. How different would our lives look if we could actually see God? In every aspect of our lives. Because the truth is, God's goodness is all around us. It's always at work, sometimes beneath the surface, but it takes a certain set of eyes to see it. Well, I have good news for you today because Jesus gives us the key to unlocking what it takes to see Him in our lives. And we find it in this very simple sentence Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. In other words, if you want to see God, you have to be pure in heart. If you want to perceive God moving in your life, you have to be pure in heart. If you want to witness God's goodness all around you, you have to be pure in heart. Now, some of you are already writing yourselves off because you're thinking, I ain't pure in heart. 
Man, if you saw what I did last week, you know I ain't pure in heart. If you know what I'm thinking sometimes when my coworker walks in the room, you know I'm not pure in heart. If you look at me when I see that celebrity that I cannot stand pop up on my Instagram feed, you know I'm not pure in heart. But what does it actually mean to be pure in heart? Because I know that all of us want to see God. We want to see him moving in our lives. But we have to understand what does it mean to be pure in heart? And I think the answer will surprise us. So I want to drop three things on you, three ways, three ways that we define what it means to be pure in heart. Y'all ready for that? All right, give me an amen. All right, the first one, a pure heart is an honest heart. I think most of us mistake pure in heart to mean sinlessness. Come on, just be real. The first, when you read that, the first thing you thought of was sinlessness, right? Like, I'm not sinning, I'm clean, I'm pure. Your ability to follow God's rules and obey them perfectly, to do religion well, and to be a good Christian boy or Christian girl, the person who doesn't get drunk or look at porn or gossip or steal or lie, the person who has it all together and never struggles. But if it's really the sinless who are able to see God, consider this. If you look back in Jesus's ministry, who were the ones that were consistently unable to see God in the life of Jesus? Who was always missing it, unable to perceive God, even though he was right there before their very eyes? I'll give you the answer. It's the Pharisees. It was the religious elite, the rule followers, the command obeyers, the ones who boasted moral superiority. And in their eyes, they were sinless, inwardly pure, perfect. They probably read this beatitude. When Jesus was preaching, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, they were probably thinking, ah, yeah, that's me. I'm the pure in heart. I can see God. They were so sure of it, yet... They were consistently unable to see God, even though he was right before them. It's crazy. Jesus is savage. I don't know if you know this, but he even even goes so far to call them blind fools. Can you imagine if I came to church one day? I was like, Aiden, you blind fool. Like Jesus was so audacious. Like he called them blind fools. They were blinded by their pride. And listen, before you assume you have nothing in common with the Pharisees, anytime you thought someone was less spiritual or less spiritually mature than you, you were just like them. And so this is for all of us. But then who were the ones who were actually able to see Jesus as he truly was? It was the sinners. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the adulterers, the liars, the rejects, the rebels and the runaways. They were the ones who were able to see God most clearly. Um, I, I led a bunch of discipleship courses when I was in college, which was over like 10 years ago. Oh, my God, like over 10 years ago now. And it, I had nothing against like the people I was discipling, but I had favorites, okay? And my favorite kids that I was discipling, college students, were actually the ones that, that would show up to Bible study a little hungover, that, that were partying all the time, that were kind of like seen at church as like the, the outsiders or like the less spiritual ones. And I was just so drawn to them. And I'll tell you why. It's because every time I got coffee with them or got a meal with them when we talked, there was this refreshing honesty about them. 
Like they weren't trying to put on a mask to seem perfect or seem spiritual. There was just this honesty. And I'll tell you what, God, some of the most impactful God moments and conversations I had were with those people where we were sitting together and they were just being honest about where they were at and God would meet them. And listen, if you grew up in church like me, we're trained to almost conceal the parts of our lives that are dirty. That we put on masks to appear squeaky, squeaky clean, but the, the truth is none of us are. And there's this refreshing honesty that's found in people who wouldn't normally be found in the church. Hear me when I say this, church. Jesus didn't say blessed are the perfect in heart. He said blessed are the pure in heart. Which means being pure in heart isn't about being without sin. It's about being honest about our sin. It's about being real about our failures and our shortcomings and our weaknesses and recognizing our need for God. It's about repentance and running to the heart of the Father again and again and again. Hear me, church. You don't have to be perfect to see God. You just have to be honest. God, I don't have it all together. God, I'm constantly making a mess of my life. God, I'm broken and lonely and lost, and I need you. When you're able to be real, no masks, no facades, no religious platitudes, just you coming as you are, you will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart where they will see God. You know, this is why I love Ash Wednesday. Yo, if you were at the worship night this past Wednesday, it was fire. It was so good. God really showed up in that room. There's a handful of us. But the thing I love about Ash Wednesday, if you've never done it before, we put ashes on our forehead. And it was so dark. I felt bad. I couldn't actually see. You're supposed to make it in the shape of a cross. But I couldn't see. So like Iris was walking with a straight line that went to her her eyebrow. And like, I just felt so bad. Dan did such a good job. He did it like so slow and meaningful over my head. Anyway, I love Ash Wednesday because we bear the mark of the cross in ashes to remind ourselves of our weakness, of our mortality, of our humanity, that we have a need for God. And when we are honest and we know that we have a need for God, those are the people that God ends up revealing himself to in greatest measure. Proverbs 24, 16, I love this. You might have heard this before. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. I love how righteousness isn't defined by perfection or sinlessness. Righteousness means when you fall down, you get back up and you dust yourself off. That is biblical righteousness. And when we don't understand this, we inevitably begin wearing masks to conceal our brokenness. Come on, you've been in that environment before where it's like, man, why is it so fake up in here? Everyone's trying to act like they got it all together, but we all know they don't. And I feel like there is something about a community that embraces the vulnerability of allowing ourselves to be real and honest about our brokenness, about our doubts, about our questions. See, the pure in heart have made peace with their imperfections. And I think some of us, we haven't made peace with our imperfections. The pure in heart, they know God's power is made perfect in their weakness, and so they don't need to hide. They can come before the Father as they are, and they will see God. 
pastoral disclaimer, this doesn't mean that we continue living um, just raging sinful lives. That's not the invitation here. It's an invitation to turn to something better, to be real about where we're at and invite God to meet us there. Listen, if you've ever come to church Wondering if God could reveal himself to someone like you or use someone like you as messed up and as broken as you are. The answer is yes. You're exactly the kind of person that God wants to see him. You're not disqualified from seeing God because of your imperfections. Um, I might have shared this story a handful of times, but one of my favorite college ministry retreats, um, I got partner, you know, Koreans love doing skits, and so there's always a portion in our retreat where the whole retreat, like no one's actors or actresses, but we're all trying to put together the funniest skit, the most wild and crazy out there skit to show and present. And I remember um, I was known as like like the funny guy, and I just happened to get paired with like the funny girl in our college class. And so people had such high expectations for our skit that it was going to be so funny. And so when we got together, you know, we had our group of about 20 people. We're like, all right, what should we do? The expectations are high. Like, how are we going to deliver? How are we going to meet their expectations? And I remember we came up with this crazy idea, like, let's not do something funny. Let's, let's do something completely opposite that just, like, shifts the atmosphere. And for some reason, I don't know why we thought this was a good idea. We're like, you know what we should do? We should have everyone just grab a cardboard piece of paper and write their deepest, darkest sin, and just reveal it. And it's just going to be, we're going to be surrounding the room in a circle, and we're just one by one, we're in silence. We're just going to hold up our sin. And so, I don't know why, but everyone agreed to it. (laughs) And so, like, everyone's skit, and they put us last, because they're like, oh my God, it's going to be so funny. And like, in silence, we just start surrounding the room, hella somber, and we're just like, everyone's like, what's going on? Like, is this going to be like a dance routine? And then one by one, we just start lifting up our signs. And I know it sounds like a train wreck waiting to happen, but literally in silence, as we're putting these things up, we hear people break out into tears as they're watching. And even the people that were holding them up, they're having this God moment. And, you know, usually after skit, it's like, dinner time, yay. We went into worship and prayer because something was happening in the atmosphere. And it was like, blessed are, are us, not because we're perfect, but because we are honest and God can meet us here in this place. And so many people came up to the people that held signs. They're like, you know, I know exactly what you're going through. That's what I struggle with. But I've never told a single person, but you gave me the courage today. And there was just so much of God moving. Blessed are the pure in heart. A pure heart is an honest heart. But the second is this. I won't make us do that, by the way. Maybe like two years from now. I don't know. We'll see. A pure heart is an honest heart, but a pure heart is also an undivided heart. The word Jesus uses here for pure is katharos, and it means singular, unmixed, undivided. It's a heart that's not split into multiple directions. It's not chasing after many things. It recognizes what's most important and pursues it above all else. My man, Tim Keller, TK, the homie TK, this is what he says. The main struggle is not between the heart and something else, 
but between forces that tear it in different directions. The great battle is deciding what your heart's greatest love, hope, and trust will be directed. The great prophets of the late 90s, NSYNC, they once sang, is tearing up my heart, right? And this is how most of us live. Our hearts are torn in a million different directions, torn between priorities, torn between loves, torn between self and others and God. And somewhere along the way, God gets lost in the shuffle. But to be pure in heart means to have an undivided heart, a heart that knows what the most important thing is and goes after it. There's this famous story in the Gospels where Jesus visits the house of Martha and Mary, and some of you might know it. And as Jesus visits the house, Martha is freaking out because she's a type two, right? And she wants to prepare everything. She wants to make sure Jesus is comfortable, that the house is clean, that the food is ready. I love my type two people. You are the best house guests, right? Or the house uh, people that you get invited to. But Martha was like that. She was trying to make sure that everything was in order and she was running around anxious. But Mary, gosh, she must be a type seven or something because she didn't care about any of that. She was just sitting at Jesus. Jesus' feet, listening to him, being with him, being present with him. And this isn't a knock against type twos because we need our type twos. We need good people to host us and welcome us into their houses. And it's clean and nice. And there's a bunch of LaCroix and everything everywhere. But Jesus is reminding us here that there will always be many things competing for our attention. There will always be many things vying for our love. But he says only one thing is needed. One thing that must become our one thing. See, Martha was so preoccupied with the many things that she was unable to see the one thing that mattered the most. Hear me, church. When our attention and our priorities, our hearts are divided, we will miss out on seeing that which matters the most. We will miss God. Psalm 37, 4. The psalmist says, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What is your one thing? What is the most important thing in your life? Where the many things are important, but they're put in the right order. I don't know if you struggle with this, but I, I suck at grocery shopping. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this situation where you're at home and you're like, oh, I need milk. And so you decide, I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to get milk. That is the one thing that I need at home to eat my cereal, my oatmeal, make omelets. I need milk. But then you get to the grocery store and then you remember everything else that you need. Oh, shoot. I do need Pop-Tarts, hot Cheetos, extra flaming. Let's go. I need some sparkling water. I need some eggs. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but you leave the grocery store, get home. Shoot. I forgot the milk. Sometimes when we're focused on the many things, we miss out on the one thing that's the most important thing. And so being pure in heart means having an undivided heart, but it also means having an uncluttered heart. 
Some of us have way too many things competing for our attention. We need to get rid of some things to make room for the most important thing. Listen, Holy Ghost needs to Maria Kondo the heck out of your heart. She needs to come in and clean house because we are way too cluttered. And, you know, this is why I love the season of Lent that we're in. This is a time where we ask God, God, is my heart divided? Is my heart cluttered in the midst of my work obligations and my relationships and my Netflix shows and everything I have going on? Are you still the one thing? Are you still the most important thing? What are the things that are competing for my attention and my affection that pull me away from you from the one thing? And through the spiritual rhythm of fasting, I know we hate fasting, but this is why we need to fast. Because through fasting, we unclutter our hearts. We untangle the messy web of priorities that are going on inside of us. And we piece back what is the most important thing so we can have an undivided heart that pursues God. We make room for the one thing that matters the most. And I love Lent. Man, we've seen God do some miraculous things during Lent. You know, I I tell this story all the time, but Kevin, man, he was jobless for the longest time. And we went through a whole Lent cycle. And God didn't answer his prayer. And he was jobless for a whole nother year. But then that second year on Lent, it was crazy. You remember that Sunday, we, we named it Kevin Libertino Sunday because he found a job and worship was so lit because we had been praying for that for so long. I know a couple that they had been trying to have baby for so long. And it was during that season of Lent where God finally gave them the gift, the miracle of a pregnancy. Listen, if you would posture yourself this season to give God your undivided heart, to make him the one thing in your life, there is no telling what he might do. You will see God and you will see him move in such astounding and miraculous ways. So a pure heart is an honest heart. A pure heart is an undivided heart. And the third is a pure heart is an open heart. The pure in heart are open to seeing God move even when it looks different from when they expected. And because their hearts are so open, they're able to see God at work in all kinds of unexpected places and unexpected people and unexpected ways. And hear me, church, they're not offended when God doesn't work in the way that they thought he would. A pure heart has great expectation for God to move, but doesn't box him into those expectations. It knows that God is so much bigger than who we imagine him to be, and we learn to see him moving even in the midst of our disappointments. I feel like I'm preaching to someone today. Because sometimes we aren't able to see God in our lives because we're looking for him to move in a specific way. Our eyes are set on our expectation of what he'll do, and we actually end up missing him completely. Or how about this? There's going to be a wave of conviction that moves across the room because this is me. We think God is only working in certain people's lives. God can't possibly use that person in my CG because they need therapy so, so bad. God can't possibly bring revival through those experiencing homelessness in our city. What do they have to offer us? We write people off. And for some of you, I really believe that God has placed your breakthrough in the prayers, in the very people that you wrote off 
because they aren't spiritual enough. You know, in my pastoral cohort, it's led by some amazing Christian influential people like John Mark Comer, uh, Dave Lomas from Reality, John Tyson from New York, all these phenomenal people. And at the very first uh, gathering of our cohort, we were in San Diego, and they did this altar call. And you know, everyone is thinking at that gathering, I hope I get prayed for by John Mark Comer. Shoot, he wrote Garden City? All right, you can garden my city. And so they did the altar call. They invited people up. And I, I tell you what, to be very honest, I went up. And I was like, all right, there, there are people working at the altar. Please pass me by so John could see me and I could get comerized. And so people are praying. And I'm, I'm waiting. John is walking close to me. I'm like, okay, John, Mark, all right. And I see Christine Kane in the corner of my eye. I'm like, no, I want Christine Kane. Forget you, John. And all of a sudden, I have this like hierarchy of people that I want blessing from. And then some random girl that I had no idea who she was came and said, I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to lie. I was a little disappointed. I was like, man, I was waiting for John Mark Comer. I was waiting for Christine Kane. Like, come on. Like, I want them to pray for me. But as soon as she started praying, yo, heaven opened up. She was reading my mail. And she gave me the word, the exact word that I needed for that very moment. And sometimes we write off people for not being spiritual enough or being what we expect in God moving. But God loves to move in the unexpected ways. When Jesus came, so many people were unable to see who he truly was. You know why? Because they were waiting for their version of the Messiah, their expectation of a king. And Jesus just didn't fit any of those boxes. The people expected Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman government and give power back to the people But he comes and he allows himself to be arrested and crucified and killed. The people expected him to come and seize power. Instead, he came and he served the least, the upside down kingdom. And as a result, so many people were unable to see God moving right there in the midst of them. I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes our expectations get in the way of our ability to see God. God I thought I'd be at this place in my life, in my career by now. God, I thought you'd move in my family already. God, I thought I would be married with three kids in a minivan by now. God, I thought you opened this door for me, but why isn't it working out? But the pure in heart means we are open to seeing God. We are open to what God wants to do, no matter how different or unexpected It is. It doesn't mean we don't have expectations. We can still have expectations for him to move in great ways. But being pure in heart means letting go of our need to know how God will move while holding on to the confidence that he will move. When we started 99, I'd like to to say that we had no expectations for what it would look like. But I'm not going to lie, you know, when we were approaching our three-year anniversary, I was like, I thought we would be a little bigger than this by now. You know, I don't really care about size, but we're, we're literally the same number when we started three years ago. And there was this temptation to think, man, God, because you're not moving in the way that I expected, does it mean you're not moving? But here God said, look at what you have. Look how beautiful. And 
I love our church. When we were approaching our three-year anniversary, I was bragging to all my friends, like, you should see what God is doing at 99. And, you know, at C-Rock, there's this moment. So, so the, the cohort of pastors that I'm part of, 100 pastors from cities like San Francisco, but most of these guys, like, they pastor churches of, like, hundreds or thousands of people. And case in point, I went to a breakout session for church operations, which church nerds like me love it. And I was sitting in the front row, and the, the person that was leading that seminar, they were like, all right, we're going to do a tally. We want to see what kind of churches are represented here at our cohort. And so they did, on the whiteboard, 0 to 50, 50 to 150. 150 to 300, 300 to 800, 800 to 2,000, 2,000 plus. They're like, all right, church is zero to 50, raise your hands. And I'm like, (gasps) and I look around and I'm the only one. (laughs) And it turns out the biggest demographic was like that 350 to 800 and then the 2,000 plus. I was like, oh my gosh. And there was almost this like complex in me that was like, shoot, like, should I be embarrassed? Like, but you know what? In that moment, I felt like, I felt so proud. I was like, I am so proud that we have a small local church because churches in the kingdom of God come in all shapes, sizes, and forms. And listen, some of you are here because reality didn't have enough room in their community group for you. Let's just be real. I was talking to Dave Lomas the other day. I was like, Dave, thank you so much for having an amazing church where thousands of people want to come because we get all the reality rejects. I love it. I own it. I'm proud of it, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. We wouldn't be here without you bro but to be real some of you are here because you need a small community in this season you need to be seen and known in ways that you haven't been able to in the days prior at a different community and there's something beautiful about that and there's something beautiful about God moving in unexpected ways that hey I thought we might be a 50 to 100 by now we 30 35 And we can be proud of that and say, God, thank you for that. I love Brian Zond. He's another author. He wrote that book, Beauty Will Save the World, that we kind of focused on last season. He says this while interpreting this beatitude. Blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul, for they will perceive God when and where others don't. You know, if you wear glasses and you wear a mask, you know, the year glasses get jacked up. And you know, when they're smudgy, you can't really see that well. And I would say that our souls are kind of like that. When we have all these smudges of expectations that we're holding on to, all these things that we're holding on to, whether it's putting up a mask or having pride or having um, clutter or having divided attention, it smears our ability to see God. It's not that he's there. It's not that he's not moving. It's just we can't see him as clearly. And so this is why this invitation is for us to have an honest, to have an undivided and an open heart. Are you open to seeing God move in the unexpected? Are you open to seeing God move in ways that you could have never otherwise imagined? I want to close with this image. You know, This whole series, Josh Garello, he took these photos throughout the city to capture each of these beatitudes. And so with his film camera, we've been taking all of his pictures. And I love this one in particular. I don't know where the hell he is, but he's in some sort of house that's looking through a window at a ladder on a tree. And I love this image. And 
Um, one of my favorite authors, he actually writes this about the Beatitudes. He says this, in the end, the Beatitudes are actually a little like a ladder. And every blessing is a rung. But it's not a ladder that we climb up to God. It's one that Jesus climbs down to be with us. The upside down kingdom. Every other religion, you're trying to get to God. But I love that the Christian faith is about a God who has fought heaven and hell and everything in between to get to us. And so when I'm reading these blessed are statements, when we're talking about having an undivided, honest, and an open heart, it's not more effort that we're exerting, but it's a realization that God has climbed down the ladder from heaven to meet us here where we're at. There is grace for it. It's not by human effort alone. And so I want to invite us into a time of response and reflection. I have a cool activity that we're going to do if you see those little colorful pieces of paper under your chair. But before we get to that, why don't we close our eyes? And I just feel an invitation from God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I feel like some of us, we've been longing to see God. We've been longing to see him in our lives. We feel so dry and we feel like we haven't really seen him move. And I feel like God is saying, I'm right here. You just need to open your eyes in a different way. And so listen, whether it's a failure or a difficulty or a struggle to be honest, I feel like God is inviting you to a place where you can be completely honest before him. Say, God, this is just where I'm at. And I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be this way, but I know that you have something better for me. Would you take me as I am? For some of you, this season is all about putting the pieces of your heart back together to make him the one thing of your life once again. I feel like some of you, the invitation today is, would you set me once again as your one thing? Some of you, this season is all about that. Lent is all about that. Fasting is all about that. What are the things in your life that are competing for my attention, my affection? Would you lay that before me? And last, I feel like some of you, God is inviting to almost reframe your expectations. Not to not have faith, but to have faith that he will move even if it looks different from what you expected. So right now, why don't you just interact with God and allow him to speak to you? What does he want you to know about what we talked about today? What does he want you to to focus on in your heart? What is the prayer? Because he wants you to see. He wants to be seen. He's not a God who teases or hides, but he wants to be found. He wants to be seen. God, I pray over every heart today. I thank you. The truth is you want to be seen. You want to be found. You want to show us all the wonderful things you're doing, but it's usually us that blind ourselves with our arrogance and our pride, with our stubbornness, with our distractions and our apathy. 
But today we lay all these things. We thank you. You are the God who has climbed down the ladder of heaven, rung by rung to meet us where we're at. And I thank you that your promise is we will see God. We will see God.